Okay, good evening and welcome to the March 2023 meeting of the San Francisco Animal Commission. My name is Michelangelo Torres and I'm your commission chairperson. We're holding our meeting tonight at City Hall. Uh, this is our first meeting since February 2023 years ago. I want to thank everybody who was able to attend uh, and fight the weather to get here. Uh, members of the public are invited to attend meetings in person or participate remotely. For those who are attending this meeting remotely, please be aware that our return to in-person meetings with our return to in-person meetings, we are now using different technology and a new meeting format to stream our meetings. We apologize in advance for any technical difficulties that may happen during the login process or during the meeting, and we thank you for your patience. There are also a few changes concerning remote public comment, which I will go over during that agenda item. For those of you who are interested in how our commission works or serving on this commission, you will find that information on our website at sf.gov forward slash animal commission. On our commission, you also find the agendas, minutes, and supporting documents from previous meetings, as well as audio and videos of past meetings. We are still in the process of learning our recording options with this new meeting format, but either the audio or video of tonight's meeting should be available on the website by tomorrow afternoon. Additional information about the commission, including links to our social media accounts, can be found on our website's About Us page. And of course, if anyone has any questions, whether it's on how our commission works or maybe you're interested in applying to be a member on the commission, please feel free to contact me with your questions at michelangelo.torres at sfdph.org. Okay. Members of the public who wish to comment during the meeting can call 415-655-0003 and use access code 2465-29... I'm sorry, excuse me. Let me repeat that again. 2465-972-2204. Then when prompted for a webinar password or ID, please enter 2023. This is one of the changes I was referring to regarding remote public comments. After getting access, please hit star three to raise your hand so that you will be allowed, so, the, so that will allow you to be called for public comment. When it's your turn to speak, you'll be prompted to hit star six, and then you can begin speaking. Please make your comments in accordance with the agenda. Commissioner Tobin, can you please take roll? Yes. Chair Torres? Here. Vice Chair Ozenoy? Here. Commissioner Van Horn? Here. Commissioner Tobin? Here. Um, Commissioner Chan is absent tonight, as is Christopher Campbell from SF Rec and Park, and Officer Greg Sutherland of SFPD. But we do have... Um, Deputy Director Amy Corso of San Francisco Animal Care and Control. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, welcome. And um, we do have a quorum. We have four, so we can proceed with the meetings. Okay. Uh, first on the agenda is general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the commission with comments on items within the commission's jurisdiction other than items on the agenda. Please note that the San Francisco Zoo, the vector-borne disease, and the animal care and control recommendations Presentations and discussions all have their own agenda, all have their own public comment periods. So please wait for those public comment periods following those agenda items if you wish to make comments on any of those. Members of the public attending the meeting in person will have an opportunity to provide public comment on every business item. In addition to public to in-person public comment, the commission will hear up to 20 minutes of remote public comment on each business item. The commission will hear remote public comment on items in the order that commenters add themselves to the speaker's queue to comment on the item. 
Please be aware that because of the 20 minute time limit, it is possible that not every person in the speaker's queue will have an opportunity to provide remote public comment. That's one of the changes as well. This is at the recommendation of, we want to still continue public comment, but it's at the recommendation, excuse me, of the city that we allow um, 20 minutes. That may change at some point, but we are going to allow up to 20 minutes of remote public comment. There isn't a limit as far as in-person public comment, but for remote, we are only offering up to 20 minutes per business item. Um, members of the public who make a remote public call I'm sorry, members of the public who wish to make a remote public comment should hit star three on their phone to be added to the speaker's queue. Adding star three will show your hand is raised on our dashboard so we will know that you wish to make a comment. A voice prompt will confirm that your hand has been raised. Please hit star three only once to be added to the queue. Hitting star three a second time will cause your hand to be lowered and we will have no way of knowing that you wish to make a comment. When it's your turn to speak, you will be prompted to hit star six you will then have two minutes to make a comment. Please be aware that after your two minutes have passed, your phone line will be muted again, and I will go on to the next caller. Please be aware that if there is a large number of people wishing to provide in-person co public comment, we may adjust the time allowed per comment to only one minute. This is done for timing purposes and to allow as many people as possible to easily provide comment. If there is a need to make this change, it will be announced before this first speaker. Um, at this time, is there anyone who wishes to make in-person public comment? Okay, seeing no one, let me check and see if there is any one of our attendees with their hand raised. Okay, at this time, I do not see any raised hands or no one in the queue, so we can go ahead and close public comment. Okay, so thank you. Uh, moving on to approval of draft minutes from the February 2023 meeting. Um, the draft minutes, for our February meeting, were distributed to commissioners early this week, and I believe everyone has had a chance to review them. Are there any questions, comments, or corrections to the draft minutes before voting? Okay, seeing none, uh, when I call your name, please state yes if you're in favor of approving the minutes or no if you are not in favor. Um, Commissioner Ozenoy? Yes. Commissioner Tobin? Yes. Commissioner Van Horn? Yes. Okay, and I also vote to approve the minutes, so minutes are approved. Okay, thank you. Moving on to chairpersons and commissioners' reports. Commissioners' reports regarding recent activities in the community involving animal issues that have been discussed by the commission in the past. Um, I do have one announcement to make, um, and this is concerning um, Commissioner um, Nina Irani. As many of you may already know, um, Nina has resigned from the commission. Um, we're gonna miss her tremendously. Um, just a second, please. I wrote something, let me read it. <laughs> As we all know, Nina is someone who was incredibly dedicated to the commission and was an officer for almost all the time on the commission that she was here. And she was actually appointed to the commission in spring of 2019, just a few months before I was appointed. I know that she was asked to be secretary at her first meeting and become chair about six months later. I consider Nina a mentor and a friend and an amazing community advocate for animals. Her compassion, intelligence, and concern really took our commission in a wonderful direction, and it's going to be really hard for us, for us with her not being here. It's really hard to imagine the commission being without her. Um, Nina sent me her resignation following her last meeting. 
Uh, I feel that what she wrote was very powerful and she has allowed me to share it, so I will read it. Dear chairperson, I'm sorry, dear chairperson, excuse me. I'm not used to being with people when I have meetings. <laughs> so, dear Chair Torres, please accept my resignation from the Commission of Animal Control and Welfare effective February 10th, 2023. My four years of service have taught me much about animals and how we can better coexist and be their companions. I'm proud to have played a role in building a commission that is compassionate, supports policies for the benefit of animals and the environment and San Franciscans alike. And that has provided a reliable public forum for the community. I want to thank the city employees from departments that gave their time to support our work, the Department of Technology, SFGovTV, the city attorney's office and the supervisors and their aides who supported our proposals over the years. I also want to thank the many individuals from outside organizations who spent their free time to attend our meetings and present about their life-saving work on behalf of our city's animals and residents. However, my experience has shown me that our commission does not receive the full respect and support we need and deserve as volunteers serving the city. For my entire time on the commission and preceding me, our request for necessary administrative support, a representative from the Department of Public Health, and the resources necessary to do our jobs, such as simply being reimbursed for our expenses, have gone unfulfilled. The time taken to administer the commission and continually find new ways to reach the city should, should be more time, we're doing that to spend more time than addressing substantive issues. A city that speaks of valuing equity allocates large budgets and staff to certain commissions and little support to others. We continue to work through these challenges over the years. At our last meeting, however, we found out the extent of the city's lack of support. Although I am grateful to Animal Care and Control for all they do to take care of our city's animals and showing up to engage with us at all of our meetings, I was disappointed to find out that ACC does, feel, does not feel similar, similar about our commission. After four years of hard work, ACC's outgoing representative had only criticism for us in her parting words. She accused us of never supporting ACC's work. Because my work on the commission has taught me the danger of misrepresentations, I, feel compelled to remind her of the, I felt compelled to remind her of the facts, including policy actions we've taken, recommendations to the city, ongoing discussions, both at our public meetings and in our work in between meetings, about ACC's needs, about what ACC's needs are and what issues are most urgent to them and providing a critical forum at our meetings for ACC to engage with the community. After serving as a front line for the city by hearing and working to address the public's comments, which are not always communicated respectfully or safely, we deserve better from the city. As commissioners, we have done our absolute best to be fair, considerate and respectful while working hard in our roles. I am most grateful to my fellow commissioners they are not only hardworking and dedicated, but roles, but models of compassion who have shown me what a supportive and caring organization can be. I hope the city can follow their lead and finally fully support them as they need and deserve, see their work, and give meaning to the words, thank you for your service. Respectfully, Nina Arani. Very powerful, and you know, if you know Nina, you know it comes from the heart. So I did want to mention a couple things about respect. And and the commission, and what I, what, my, what I feel my responsibilities are as a, as a chairperson. I, I don't like for anyone who attends to, to not feel respected. I know we all give so much of our time and so much of our energy, 
and we have so much passion. I don't want that to, we should not be rewarded with disrespect for our actions and for our, for our service. Now, Nina mentioned disrespect, but I know as well that Dr. O'Neill felt at times disrespect from the commission. And I've also heard from presenters who felt disrespected by commissioners. And I'm, I'm probably preceding me, there were also presenters and or members of the public who disrespected commissioners. So I guess what I'm trying to get with this is that as a, even though I've never been accused of being disrespectful to anyone, and if I have been disrespectful, please bring it to my attention when you can, um, call me out on it. Um, I feel an obligation to make this a respectful environment. And to that end, what I've done is I've shared this message with um, the city, uh, with our deputy city attorney, Nina gave me the permission to do so, as well as the city administrator's office. And I asked them, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, I, I don't see it, but we're getting reports of people feeling disrespected and I don't want that on the commission. What can I do? What can we do as a city to help people who are volunteering to feel respected? Um, I did hear right away back from the city attorney's office and they are interested in meeting with me. Um, the city administrator didn't respond right away, but I did get a prompt back saying that they were out of the office most of this week. So I, but I have no doubt that they will respond. But I would love to be able to, to meet with them as well as with um, someone from um, Animal Care and Control and talk about you know, what the expectations are concerning um, you know, respect and how we should work together and um, making sure that we work together better because the way because if we work better with the community I you know we can obviously accomplish more and um, I'm definitely all about trying to find out what I can do what I've done in the past and try to address it and I know that others are as well um, I also know that there is probably a bit of an adversary um, relationship between the Commission and ACC from time to time and I don't want that I want to address it and I want to try and fix it so um, I'm hoping that you know that we'll be able to to do something that we'll be able to move forward, and um, you know I just wanted to share that with everybody because you know I I think that you know by by everyone feeling respectful that we can get a lot more done, and let's not forget we're here because of animals, and you know we shouldn't let you know egos or anything else or any kind of hard feelings stop us from trying to accomplish that. So thank you. Um, I don't have any other um, reports. Um, does anyone else have any reports or anything they'd like to share? Oh, yes, Commissioner Rosenay. Hey, hello, thank you, uh, Chair Torres. I just wanted to say that I spoke with uh, um, the warden from California Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, Warden O'Brien, and um, CDFW really wants to be more involved in the commission and in the city in working with us. And so I'm hoping that we can figure out a way that they can um, take, you know, uh, first of all, they would like to come and present at some point and describe what, uh, what their work is and how they could work um, with us. But I feel like there's an opportunity for us to partner um, with them a little more closely if that's possible. And I think that's going to probably have to be a conversation also with the city attorney. Um, you know, we have all these representatives from the Department of Health, um, you know, police, um, and city parks and rec that don't that don't come, and I feel like um, you know, fish and wildlife actually does want to come. So maybe there's a way that we can figure out a way to get them more involved. And thank I don't have an answer. This is just I want to bring it up to the commission. No, thank you. That's that's a really good suggestion. Um, right now, 
we're based on our ordinance, we have four representatives who, who attend on an as-needed basis. We're fortunate that ACC attends more than on a needed basis, so thank you, um, Deputy Director Corso. Um, but, you know, those are specific departments, so, so there's nothing in the ordinance that allows it, but, you know, let's, let's ask. Okay. I mean, I suppose they could also be deputized by another department to be the representative for that department. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I, don't mean, know, I so. yeah. But thank you. That's something mm -hmm. definitely to look forward to look into because it definitely sounds very beneficial for all of us. Okay, so thank you. Moving on to new business, um, San Francisco Zoo conservation update. Um, Ingrid Russell, director of collections at San Francisco Zoological Garden, Zoological Gardens, will present on the zoo's most recent are the recent conservation efforts. Thank you for being here, Director Russell. Um, Commissioner Tobin, please introduce this item when you are ready. Hi there, how are you today? Just great, thank you. <laughs> great. This is a, if I remember correctly, this is a follow-up to a report you did a while ago, a presentation you did a while ago on conservation efforts in the Sierras. And now this is more the behavior results of some of the conservation efforts? Yeah, I'll be giving an overview of, um, of our Head Start programs, our local mm -hmm. conservation Head Start programs, which are both in the Sierra and locally. Um, and um, a part of our research expanding into both behavior and disease studies. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I forget, I played around so much with this presenter's uh -oh. thing. Are you okay to see. present now, or do, do I need to No, we're, we're good to go. Okay, good. Thank you. Let me just make sure that I can bring it up here. There we go. Perfect. Oops. Oops. There we go. So yes, um, good evening. Um, I'm Ingrid Russell, the Director of Collections at San Francisco Zoo. Um, I am in our conservation department, and my update for this evening is focusing on our head starting and behavioral research. Uh, this is our conservation, our boots on the ground team, headed by uh, Rochelle and Jesse, and introducing um, really the people that do you know, all of the day-to-day -day work and uh, work with the field biologists, Jamie, Ben, and Alex. So big thanks to them, they really make it happen. Um, so as a reminder, head starting um, is essentially uh, giving animals a leg up so that when they're released back into the wild, they have a greater chance of survival. Um, bringing them um, to a larger size, we do bring in tadpoles from the wild, even egg masses from the wild. Um, given to us by the, uh, the officials up in the, the national parks and bring them to the zoo and grow them to, um, to a larger size so that when they're re-released, they have a, a greater chance of survival, as I just said. So these are our five focused species, um, the Sierra Nevada yellow-legged frog, the California red-legged frog, the Yosemite toad, western pond turtle, and the San Francisco fork-tailed damselfly. So those bottom two, the turtles and the damselfly, are more local. San Francisco, that's, uh, that animal has a very um, narrow range. Um, I won't be talking about um, that program. They are housed in our um, insect zoo, and our insect zoo curator and keepers care for the damselflies and do the releases. I'll be focusing on the, um, the frogs and toads in this presentation. 
Um, so we're going on a decade of this local conservation work. Um, our yellow-legged frog program started in 2014 and prior to last year, and last year was a banner year, so those statistics um, I'll present separately, we released almost 2,000 animals back into the wild. And the red-legged frogs, over 1,000 in that eight-year program. The western pond turtle was the first uh, conservation program, local conservation program that started in 2008 and we've released uh, 445 turtles. Yosemite toad, this is a new species for us. The National Park Service is asking us to work on um, husbandry practices for those animals um, for release in the future. So we do house some now, and we're hoping to release animals back to the wild in 2024. And when I say we release, uh, we work in concert with the National Park Service who, um, does the collections in the wild and we meet at some place and do the transfer of animals and then we bring them back to them and they do the actual releases, although some of our staff does assist in that. Um, so in last year, our year nine of our uh, yellow-legged and red-legged frog programs, we release, released or assisted to release um, a total of over 800 animals just last year alone to four different release sites. And the red-legged frogs, excuse me, um, 100 went back in 2022. Um, so uh, prior to last year then, um, excuse me, prior to this year, you can see the numbers really jumped up, almost 27, or over 2,700 yellow-legged frogs, et cetera. The numbers are, are really remarkable. Um, this year, uh, we have 745 yellow-legged frogs currently at the zoo that will all be released this year. The red-legged frogs, um, over 700 that are now housed at the zoo will be released this year, 250 next year. And the Yosemite toads will begin uh, helping re-release uh, 153 that we currently have will go out in 2024. Um, so I didn't show this at my last presentation, but I wanted to show you a little bit of our physical plant. So I don't know if you're familiar with some of our other conservation programs that we have um, collaborated with at the San Francisco Zoo, but we were very involved in bald eagle conservation back in the 80s. And uh, this facility that you see on the screen uh, housed our bald eagles. Um, so on the left, there were these big flight mews. On the right, those were egg incubation rooms. And we've converted those spaces because the, the bald eagle program wound down in the early 2000s, um, at leaving us with um, this space to utilize for something else. So we've converted. Uh, these are the indoor spaces of what were flight mews. We put in some ceilings, added some wall structure, and they've worked great now um, to be able to house all of our, our rearing facility for, um, for our frogs and toads. Uh, so when we first started the program, we were using primarily glass aquariums which work great for tadpoles, but as the, the animals metamorphose and they start spending more time on land, it was um, challenging to continue to keep them in glass. Um, so we've converted to using these large um, fiberglass tubs. 
Um, and the trough on top, so the blue tub actually houses, uh, that, there are tadpoles in there, and the trough on top is actually a part of the water filter system. Um, the, filter, the water that, they're, that they live in is both filtered and chilled um, to mimic what they would experience in the wild, maybe not right now under snow, but um, in any case, uh, we found that these are a lot easier to work with, and the um, opacity of the troughs, too, uh, prevents um, startling the animals, so they're not impacted as much when there are humans working around them. Um, for the Yosemite toads, we're experimenting with what works best for them. I said this is a new species that we're working with. Oh, and by the way, San Francisco Zoo is, as far as I know, the only zoo in the world that has Yosemite toads on exhibit. Uh, three were deemed non-releasable because of some medical issues. So they are currently um, on view at the San Francisco Zoo, right at the entrance to the exploration zone near the carousel. So um, the Yosemite toads are, are more um, terrestrial, so their enclosures don't have as much of a water feature. They, they spend more time on land than the frog species. This is an example of a yellow-legged frog a stock tank. Um, Yellow-legged frogs are more aquatic than the red-legged frogs, so they have more water space, but also lots of basking area so that they can choose and regulate where they want to go. So this is kind of an aside that the aquatic stock tanks have these lips on them, and we found out that for the yellow-legged frogs, this really mimicked their, what they would experience in the wild with being in these ponds that are primarily um, granite, on granite slabs and um, granite lined. Um, so I think they think they're on granite, but <laughs> anyway, here's an example of our red-legged frog, which are a little bit more terrestrial. It has more land area dedicated to them. And of course, we need to put tops on them as the animals grow, because they do have the ability to climb or jump out. So getting to our behavior and disease studies, um, so head starting gives them a leg up to be a larger, more robust animal, when, so when they return to the wild, they have a greater chance of success. Um, but we've also been studying um, their behavior, and also we've conducted a disease study, again, to give them a further leg up for survival when um, they're moved into the wild. So the behavior study has just started in the last couple of years. And I'll, I'll try to interpret, of course, this presentation was given me by one of our PhD conservation people, and um, I will do my best to translate to you. Um, so in studying behavior, they're really looking to see whether, well, for, for one, if the frogs you know, had, um, you know, what range of behavior they had, were they consistent in their behavior, um, uh, did they have what they called personality types um, that were consistent over time? Um, so they set up a study um, really looking at how the animals um, responded to an open space. Did they um, tend to hide a lot or were they more bold? Did they spend time uh, moving around, et cetera? Um, and Personalities are generally determined by, well, sort of nature-nurture, you know, either genetics or the environment. And did those um, components play 
a role in their personalities or developing their personalities um, with the hypothesis that having a wide range of behavior or behavioral types to release back in the wild would um, assure greater success. Because as we know, the environment in the wild is, is ever-changing. Um, Yosemite has been kind of a classic example in the last six years with fires, with drought, and now with extreme snow and cold and flooding. Um, so having uh, different behavior to adapt in the wild um, is thought to be a good thing. Um, so they looked at frogs in their, in their enclosure, in their environment, and then would that behavior stay the same in a novel setting. So they created this laboratory, if you will, uh, with a grid on the ground so that they could um, put the animals in a completely new setting and see whether or not they behave differently than they did in their enclosure, and also to, to uh, really shrink down and focus on just uh, the behavior of either hiding or um, exploring their environment. And um, they set it up with 38 individual animals per enclosure. They had, I believe, four different enclosures that they chose from. They did five-minute trials, and um, they did this in, in different sequences. There were three trials altogether with five weeks in between. And lots of hours of video to review. Um, so anyway, they were measuring uh, whether the animals were hiding, were they sitting at the entrance, or were they moving outside. So that was um, how they broke out these different behaviors when they looked at the results. And um, they used these categories of personalities, if you will, on the left here. The hiders were the animals that stayed inside the hide. The vigilantes were the ones who sat at the entrance to see what was going on out there. And the movers were the ones who really came out and explored a lot. And then average Joes were the ones that didn't seem to fall into any of those three categories. Um, at the top, those icons mean if they came from an enclosure that had lots of places to hide and lots of water in the first column, or not that many hides, lots of water, lots of hides, not so much water, or not so much of either. And roughly what they found was that their environment that they came from really, their behavior was consistent whether they were in their own enclosure or whether they were moved into this new enclosure. Um, so the, the compilation of the findings, and this is still early days yet, but they found that frogs really are consistent in their behavior, whether they're in their home environment or whether they're in this novel environment, and that their personalities sort of stayed consistent, um, and that they believe that having, um, well, they, there were a wider range of behavioral types. This, this is very uh, early on, I should say, again, the wider range of behavioral types in enclosures with fewer hides. That's something that they're still proving out. Um, is whether having fewer places to hide actually elicited a wider range of behavior in the animals. But that was a, a preliminary finding. Um, and that their behavior stayed consistent whether they were in their home environment or whether they were in this novel setting. Um, so that was interesting to see. So I think taking from that is uh, they really want to um, have, I mean, although all frogs will be released going forward, to see the frogs that do have good survivability, are they the ones that had this sort of broader range of behavior?
Okay, um, going back to the disease study, I believe that I presented a little bit on this in my presentation a couple of years ago. Um, but as probably most people know, um, the chytrid fungus, or uh, it's initialized BD, is a global disease that affects amphibians. And it was, I believe it first appeared in the 1950s. It moved into the Sierra in the 1970s. And it has driven over 200 species of amphibians around the world to extinction. Yellow-legged frogs were really highly impacted by, um, by BD. They estimate over 90% of frogs had been um, had died off um, from this disease. Um, so a woman at UC Berkeley, uh, Mary Toothman, created an immunization protocol uh, specifically with yellow-legged frogs to see if they could develop an immune response um, by basically infecting them in a laboratory setting, um, clearing the virus with an antifungal medication, and then um, to see if, if they were infected again, if they would have an immune response. And um, it did actually lower the infection, the intensity of the infection so that it was proved non-lethal. So um, we've been conducting the same type of study with the red-legged frogs. And what's interesting with the red-legged frogs is that they were not as impacted, although they were exposed to the, to, uh, the fungus in the wild, their populations didn't crash like the yellow-legged frogs did. They seemed to have some kind of a natural immunity. Um, but we still proceeded um, to see whether or not they would have an increased um, survivability with, um, with the application of the antifungal and going through the immunization process. Um, so I just wanted to point out uh, the, the photo here with the gloves. That sort of, it shows skin sloughing. Um, how the fungus affects amphibians is it inhibits their ability to pass water through their exterior skin membranes, um, which is really stressful on the animal. And actually, how the fungus kills them then is by um, uh, they 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 have cardiac arrest because it's it's so intensively stressful for them to try to uh, pass water through their membranes. So the conclusion of our disease susceptibility study is that um, the animals can clear the fungus on their own without the treatment, um, but they can also develop a response um, via the inoculation process. Um, so this is our, basically roughly our findings from our disease um, study is that uh, they can clear it without treatment, but they can also develop an additional immune response from the process. And that their infection, the intensity of their infections, you know, this is kind of going back to yellow-legged versus red-legged. The, the yellow-legged frogs have this really extreme, intense uh, reaction to the infections where the red-legged frogs seem to have a much uh, lower threshold for mortality. Um, and we're hoping that this is part a key to understanding their um, continued survival in the wild. So this has been a very ambitious project. And we're so happy that things have gone really well for this program. 
um, because it's taken a lot of hard work and it was really, uh, you know, starting with animals that had, had very, had, people had very little experience raising them in captivity and what are the climate conditions that you need, what, you know, types of food do you feed them, um, et cetera, et cetera. And we've, we've had just remarkable success. I really want to give kudos to everyone that has been involved with this. It's, um, it's really made a big impact for these species. Um, but unfortunately, one of the things that's been working against us is um, climate change. And uh, the Yosemite Valley and the Sierra have been just riddled with drought and fires and, um, you know, now that hopefully the, the heavy snowpack rainfall um, shouldn't have a negative impact, but it's been such a changeable environment, which has also made the field work really challenging. Um, the fires dry out the um, water sources that the animals are living in, and a number of the sites were very remote. So when there wa was wildfire around, it was very difficult to get to them for the field workers to be able to go and monitor the animals. Um, but we're happy to share our milestones. Um, with the red-legged frogs, the first release group survived their winter. Um, in 2019 to 2022, frogs bred at eight of our 16 release sites. We saw tadpoles metamorphosing. Um, the offspring of the animals that were put out there have been seen reproducing, and frogs are now um, dispersing and moving to new habitats, um, and they're also breeding there. So, so much thanks to everyone that's been involved in this. It's really taken a village to, uh, to make this great of an impact but we're very proud to have been a part of this project. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's um, open it up for any kind of, for any questions or comments from the commission. Yes. Um, going back more than 20 years, um, I can remember as a college student doing uh, explorations into the California environments to do uh, Brayton Eye counts, red-legged frog counts. Um, you'd have 100 students in the Sierra Nevadas or down in the coastal regions going out and asking permission to get onto people's property and see how many frogs we could mm -hmm. actually count from year to year. Um, one of the methods for extrapolating how many are actually out in the world um, is, is um, what we use with salmon and um, shad, uh, just marking somehow the, the frogs. Do you have um, toe clips or markings on any of these frogs so you know yours versus the wild ones and can be able to kind of extrapolate what the total population is? Yes, um, they are fitted with a microchip. Oh. So we, we can't identify them. Awesome. Sometimes those go missing, um, but they're all, they all have pit tags. Good to know. Um, probably dozens more questions, but that was the big one that was <laughs> sticking out. Um, super nice. Thank you. Any other questions? Well, I have one quick one here. I, sure. Just as a reminder, the last time you were here, you presented the difference between doing nothing versus what you've done. 
you had some really interesting numbers about in the wild, a certain population is only going to yield a certain amount of offspring oh, right, versus right, right. what your Head Start program is doing. Yes. And so if you remember those numbers off the top of your head. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was a couple of years ago. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I seem to remember that um, in, in the wild, you know, a, a clutch of a thousand eggs may produce five adults in the end, and we were able to move that needle to, you know, almost equivalent, you know, I mean most, well, not equivalent, but I would say, yeah, significantly more, I don't know the exact number, but I would say at least half of the eggs end up making it to adult. And I do remember Anne-Marie asked um, the question last time. was like, all right, so this is happening in Yosemite. And Brian, you answered really clearly, like, why does that, how does that affect us here in San Francisco, other than we have a zoo that's doing some remarkable conservation efforts? So, Sorry, what, what's the question? The question is sharing. I, well, it's not I, even a question. It's just I, more like I'd sharing. just love to jump in on that one because, I mean... Mother Nature doesn't know where our city's boundaries are. And um, a lot of the species that we find in other places also exist here, but we don't have anybody researching them here. So the only way we're going to get data that we can extrapolate and use for even similarly related species is work like what they're doing. And when you have a, a species that is in massive decline and people finally say, here's some money, go research why, um, whether or not that's going on within the city limits, um, you know, it's, it's, it's knowledge that we need that's going to help us down the line to preserve the ones that actually are here. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, we're working with an insect species, um, a turtle species, and a frog and toad species, and really perfecting the, the captive husbandry is really valuable and can be shared to other species. So, you know, when there is another frog or another toad in peril and they, they're going to do captive rearing, um, they might use our information, our knowledge to help set up their facility. And that's a perfect point. Um, Clemmy's marmorata is our western pond turtle. They're in huge decline in all of their regions. Um, we have a few left here in San Francisco. and. When they drained um, Stowe Lake, not Stowe, what's the one with the boats on it oh, a while back? That is so Most of them were red-eared sliders, but there were a number of Clemmy's marmorata, and I went out there with people in the boots and, you know, scooped them up out of the mud, and nobody cared. I mean, we reached out to the Academy of Sciences. We reached out to Fish and Game. Um, we did put in a call or two to the zoo, and we kind of took them under our own wing and let them go in South Lake. Um, we did microchip a few just to see what would happen. But if we don't care about what's going on with our own, you know, species here in the city enough to do any more than that, we really need to value the research that's going on in other places where people actually are studying them and figuring out what recruitment takes or making babies rather um, naturally. Um, 
you know, in places where people are willing to study them. Ironically, most of the research on that species came from the, the military. There's a, a great scientist who dedicated a lot of his career to studying Clemmie's marmorata, who was paid by the industrial military complex because they, he had access to lands that nobody else did. Um, so we got to grab that research, no matter who's doing it. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you again for coming. Sometimes we um, bring presenters here, and it seems like what we're presenting is maybe outside the reach of what the Animal Commission might want to present on. But I think these are important openers and discussions, especially when you talk about behavior and disease. All of these things impact us tremendously, not only in um, you know the work that you're doing, but around us as well, too, just to see this, like you said, being able to um, have others benefit from the studies that you're doing right now, right. not just us, but you know, we really thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, and this program really speaks to the power of partnerships, so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a model in many ways. Yes, Commissioner Rosani. Um, for the immunization protocol, is it um, safe to extrapolate that perhaps the group will try other species as well with the, that immunization um, against the bee, the, the uh, the chytrid, chytrid fungus? You know, yeah, mycosis. Yeah, I, um, if there are other species that we're working with that, that are susceptible, perhaps. Um, I mean, this was kind of a unique opportunity and a unique example uh, of, a, of an animal that really needed that. We really needed that information to make sure that we were successful in, the, in this release program. Sounds like a great application of, of science, so. Yeah, well, we'd share it with anyone who needs it, for sure. <laughs> great, any other questions from the commission? Okay, we'll open it up to in-person public comment if there's any comments. Okay, seeing none, let's check and see about remote. Uh, let's see. Okay, members of the public who wish to make a remote public comment on this agenda item, item should hit star three on their phone to be added to the speaker's queue. Okay, currently I don't see any callers wishing to make comments so we can close public comments. Ingrid. Thank you again so much for your presentation. Thank you for braving the rain to come out with us. We really appreciate it. Thank You're you. You're very welcome. You Thank do. you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, you can go ahead and stop sharing your screen now, and then I can go ahead and let me know if you need any help. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, before we move on to the next item, I do have a few questions that I was asked concerning conservation and larger animals at the zoo. Um, I'm aware that these questions are not necessarily in Ingrid's area of expertise, so Ingrid was kind enough to forward them to one of her colleagues who provided answers. Um, I want to share the questions and answers. Some of these were actually questions that um, former Commissioner Irani had wanted to ask um, to the commission in case there was an interest of maybe having a presentation at some point on the zoo and the larger animals that are kept there. So here are the questions and answers if I can share them with you. So this one's from, um, from Nina. 
I and Nina, by the way, is a, is a current zoo member. I appreciate all that the zoo is doing to contribute to conservation and education. When it comes to education, would the zoo consider additional steps to educate visitors? I ask because as a member, I visit several times a year, and during most visits, I am saddened to hear disrespectful, disparaging, and even cruel comments made about animals in their presence. Although the animals cannot understand these communications in the same way we do, they can feel our energy and this treatment undoubtedly affects them. Also, the zoo states that part of its mission is to educate, but if most guests, as I have observed, spend only a minute or less at each enclosure and don't spend time to actually observe the animals or even read the information posted and voice such low opinions of the animals, then there is no education happening. One step that may help could be distributing a flyer with each ticket educating the public on proper behavior, including commentary about the animals, noise, and any other behaviors, and to inform the public animals are creatures that are affected by our treatment of them. I am interested to know what steps the zoo is or will take in the future to change the situation. Um, the person responded back, answered previously, we do have zoo signage and we are moving away from using more paper for environmental reasons. I think what they referred to was previously, um, answered previously was that there was a little bit of a, of a, of a thread going on and they had mentioned um, that in some of their studies that they just realized that people aren't unfortunately reading the signage. So I think that that is what that is referring to. But uh, that was a response to, to Nina's question there. Um, then the next question Nina had as well is, as a longtime admirer of the lowland gorilla family, the rhinoceroses and other large species, I would like to know what the long-term plan is for these animals. As animals with larger natural ranges, it seems their enclosures are not ideal. Is there any plan to eventually move these animals into sanctuaries that could better meet their needs? Um, this is a response. Most sanctuaries do not hold the high animal care standards met by AZA accredited institutions, such as the San Francisco Zoo. As an example, most sanctuaries do not have full-time veterinary care. SF, has, SF Zoo has three full-time vets on staff. The zoo industry trend is to larger exhibits, although larger isn't necessarily better. Complexity is important too, and our gorilla habitat offers such. Our gorilla habitat exceeds the requirements at both AZA and state federal agency levels for size. Building new exhibits is extremely expensive, but we've been able to make modifications in the past few years to expand older enclosures. And as examples, they mentioned the bears and lion houses. By removing old infrastructure, which doubled the size, and they did this, they're saying, by removing old infrastructure, which doubled the size of the current enclosures. Um, the next to our questions that I asked based on questions that had been run, that, had, that someone had run by me. So I put down, in addition on the topic of larger animals, I am curious if the zoo has a policy concerning what type of groups that are allowed to hold events on their property. I asked because some zoos have allowed organizations such as Safari Club International to hold hunting fundraisers with the zoo's full support. A good example is this was, a good example is that this was done at the accredited Calgary Zoo. Does the San Francisco Zoo have any such policy regarding what type of events are not welcome? And the response was not sure about a policy per se, but we do offer the use of our, grand, of our great hall and other gathering spaces for rent to any group. Most of these events are coordinated by our vendor, SSA, that provides the zoo's food service as well. Um, so that was a response. Um, also along the lines of what Nina's asking, it was about 20 years ago that the zoo stopped exhibiting elephants. 
What are the zoo's feelings now concerning elephants at the zoo? Did anything change as far as the thoughts concerning zoos, elephants at the zoo? And how does that influence how other large animals are currently cared for at the zoo? And the response was elephants are not currently allowed to reside inside the city of San Francisco without meeting vigorous requirements. We do not currently have plans to bring elephants back to the back in the future, which I found interesting because I remembered at that time that that was one of their main goals was to raise money so they can, you know, set up what they felt was a, a decent um, um, space for animals for the elephants to come back. So, anyways, I just shared this with you, and you know, if at some point we do want to talk about. Um, about maybe having a discussion or having a presentation concerning larger animals at the zoo, please reach out to me. Okay, thank you. Um, I have just one comment on that. Yes, too. thank you. The, um, we, we are required to um, send a representative, that's me, to the um, Joint Zoo and Rec and Park meetings. And those happen the third Thursday of every month at nine o'clock. Um, the first in-person meeting will be in April, and um, I welcome anybody to come to that. There are some amazing presentations about the behavioral and strategic planning that goes on to the types of animals that are um, curated, really, or shared amongst zoos and their plan and strategy behind um, the populations that they have there. I'm sure Ingrid could speak more eloquently than I can on it, but um, I highly recommend going to them. They're very fascinating meetings. And they're short, half hour. In and out. Hint, Where? hint. <laughs> yeah. I always tell Michael that. Half an hour. <laughs> Where are they held at the zoo? They, um, they will, it, that's to be determined. It's been three years since we've met in person. And so the very first meeting will be in April. But um, so anyway, I will, I will share that on our website where it's going to be. Great. Thank you. Okay, uh, so um, moving on to um, item number B, vector-borne diseases discussion. Uh, discussion concerning the spread of vector-borne diseases in San Francisco. Commissioner Van Horn, please feel free to start your report when you're ready. I'll be brief on this this evening, but I wanted to sort of plant the seeds so that we can get to this in future meetings and potentially make it a priority. Um, I've practiced veterinary medicine for a decade and a half in San Francisco, and in that time, vector-borne disease has changed a lot, um, specifically things that are spread by ticks and mosquitoes. When I first moved to San Francisco, all of my colleagues said is, if your dog doesn't leave San Francisco, you don't need to be on tick preventative, and maybe down by the Brisbane border, but we didn't have them coming out of the park and out of the Presidio in the numbers that we do now. I can't go a week without having numerous people calling about ticks being on their dogs. The reasons for that are debatable, but it's not just me. Nadar Shakura, the, the guy at the public health department who looks at vector-borne disease, says they don't have any money to actually monitor this, but he also is aware that the tick numbers have gone way up possibly due to the fact that we have almost 300 coyotes living in the city now, possibly due to the fact that our possums have largely disappeared and they're your main predator, the only natural predator of ticks. Um, but 
our American dog, dog tick, um, the one that they see the most of here, can transmit Babesia or Leukiosis and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, all diseases that are just known to be across the bridge from us in all directions. It's probably here too, but we haven't bothered to look. And if veterinarians get positives, very few animals don't leave the city. So we need to think about some sort of self-reporting situation because the city doesn't have the money to, to monitor this. The only thing they're worried about really is Aegis aegypti was a mosquito that transmits West Nile virus. That's what they have the money to monitor. Now on the mosquito front, 10 years ago, we didn't have any viable vectors for heartworm disease. Now we've detected two um, here in the city, in the Presidio. Thankfully, Helen over at the Presidio does a great job of their, their mosquito surveillance. But even there, they're really only worried about the ones that are transmitting human diseases like malaria. And when they find um, heartworm transmitters, it goes on their list, but they're not reporting to veterinarians. They're not um, making it any type of issue with the city. Um, doing any type of, of monitoring of any of this. In contrast, you look at a place like Los Angeles. Since Katrina, when they had an influx of many, many heartworm-positive animals, they have made heartworm disease in dogs a reportable disease. Not just because they're interested in dogs, but also it's the canary in the coal mine. Um, when you start seeing more vector-borne mosquito or tick transmitted disease in dogs, you're also going to be seeing more of it in humans. So they recognize down there that it's worth surveying. We don't seem to make it an, a priority here. So as the, you know, as the commission's influence may or may not go very far, I think that we should potentially invite the city to put more money into actually just seeing what ticks and what mosquitoes we have here and what they're positive for. Um, it's not just gonna help dogs, it's gonna help humans as well eventually. And um, in the weeks to come, I plan to get Dr. Chan um, possibly here for, uh, or virtually here for a presentation. She's um, a wealth of knowledge. Um, she's been following all this down in Los Angeles for many, many years, and she is a great source of knowledge and recommendations on how we might be able to do a better job than what we are right now. Um, I'll finish off with just saying that heartworm disease, for example, by the time an animal starts coughing and they've got a heart full of adult worms in their chest, you have a 50% chance of saving them. And by the time we get 10 or 15 of those diagnosed in the city, um, we probably have 150 that are actually out there positive and, and sick from it. Um, so it's gonna be a slow burn as far as us actually detecting it unless we're sort of proactive in, in testing and monitoring. Um, again, I'll, I'll bring it up more at the following meetings once I see how much people are interested in, in actually contributing to this, but I think it should be a priority for our commission.
Great. Thank you for the report. And yes, let us know um, when we can have um, Dr. Uh, Chan present to us. And yes, we are able to have um, presenters remotely. Um, in the case of uh, uh, Ingrid Russell, she chose to come down here, which was great. But yeah, we can have remote presenters. So, so that's something good to keep in mind. Um, I guess we can open up to any in-person public comments. Okay, seeing none, let's check on remote. Uh, members of the public who wish to make remote public comment on this agenda item should hit star three on their phone to be added to the speaker's queue. Okay, currently I do not see anyone with their hand raised um, for this agenda item, so we will go on. Um, Okay, yeah, thanks again, um, Commissioner Van Horn, and um, please keep us updated. So moving on to uh, agenda item C, SF Animal Care and Control Policy Recommendations. Discussion and vote on recommendations to animal care and control following the presentation on cats and kittens that were recently presented to the commission. So um, a couple things I wanted to mention before I start my, um, my talk. Um, there are there are copies of the SF ACC recommendations. The, that's the first page. There's also connected to it a back page in which um, Nina actually was able to um, help me edit for um, clarity. So that's what that is. It's basically the same thing, just that we've we've made some changes to make it a little bit more clearer. Okay. So just wanted to point that out because I will be referring to that during the course of my talk. Okay. Okay, first, um, what I want to do is I want to acknowledge a few written comments or communications that were sent to me that I believe are in regard to this, um, that I feel are in regard to this agenda item. I received three messages from rescue organizations sharing positive experiences that they have had with animal care and control. In addition, I received a letter of support from SF, for, a, for ACC's community cat program from the SFSPCA as well as a document entitled Analysis of Community Cat Program Studies written by former Commissioner Bill Hamilton. Uh, these were all forward, forwarded to our commissioners um, and they have been shared on our website under communications received, okay? So I also wanna thank all the people who met with me and are presented to the commission during these last few months regarding cats, kittens, and the admission policy at Animal Care and Control. As most of us remember, we have had we have been discussing this issue since September and have seen some amazing presentations and had some great discussions. So thank you to Maria Conlon, Elena Jaw, Dr. Sherry O'Neill, uh, SFACC Executive Director Virginia Donahue, Damia Forti um, from crazycatlady.com and Oakland Animal Services Director Ann Dunn. I also want to thank the staff of SFACC who met with me and answered questions and Nadine May and Alva Garant, Garant, I apologize, Alva, for, for granted, thank you, who provided feedback and helped me with terminology. Uh, she's still helping me with terminology. <laughs> as well as all the other members of the community who provided insight and shared their experiences with me. Most of all, I want to thank our commission for their support and openness on this issue, and special thank you to our former commissioner, Nina Irani. It was Nina's writings and her research that really inspired me to look deeply into this matter and work towards something that I hope will help. Uh, 
Just like many of us who are here today, doing all that one can do to help cats is something that Nina really believes in. And even after resigning from the commission, Nina continued to help by providing feedback, suggestions, and even helped with our final edit. So again, thank you so much to Nina and thank you so much to everyone else. Uh, thank you as well to Deputy Director M. Amy Corso for your responses to our recommendations and the follow-up documentation you forwarded to us earlier today. I appreciate your openness and willingness concerning the recommendations. It means a lot to us. So before we start discussing the recommendations, I do want to go over what these recommendations are and what they, what they are meant to be, or what I hope they are seen as, and what they are not. So offering recommendations of this sort is something that is within this commission's jurisdiction. We are able to, and I apologize as this language is a little dated, make recommendations regarding animal control and welfare to the Board of Supervisors and the City Administrator. The Department of Animal Care and Control is, under, is of course, under the City Administrator. Um, so our commission is also able to study and recommend requirements for the maintenance of animals in public, private, and commercial care, which the Department of Animal Care and Control would fall under. So I just want to address this as this type of question has come up in the past, whether or not we have jurisdiction to offer recommendations um, of this type. Um, in addition, I do want to mention that um, I have been sending the recommendations. I've been back and forth between city administrator's office and um, our deputy um, city attorney, and at no time did they ever say, wait, that's, that's not in line with what the commission should be doing. So it is something that we, should, that we are able to do. Now, I want to also mention what these recommendations are not. These are not meant as an attack on the Department of Animal Care and Control. If the commission votes in support of these recommendations, it is our way of saying that after months of presentations and discussions, these are what we would recommend for the department. Again, it is not attack on the department. There are lots of amazing people volunteering work in the department, many of whom I think would support these recommendations. So again, this is not to be seen as an attack on them or the department. Okay, so on to the recommendations. Um, I will go ahead and read them and mention any recent edits for clarity. And as I mentioned, copies of these are available on the, um, the table. So first, revise the current, and, and also too, um, Amy, um, I'm sorry, um, Executive Director Corso, you provided some talking points. Um, would you wanna respond with these talking points after I say each, or do you want me just to go and go through everything and we talk about them afterwards? Okay, is that okay? Okay, good. And as I said, I also didn't ask if you wanted me to copy these and distribute this. I just went ahead and forwarded, as you know, we have them just to the commissioners, but we can go ahead and go over that. Thank you. So anyways, the first recommendation is revise the current shelter policy, admissions policy to allow healthy cats and kittens to be accepted into the shelter on a case-by-case -case basis based on their individual needs and circumstances, including their location and any safety concerns. So this came about because there were stories that we heard of cats that were being brought in and were not being admitted um, at the counter. Um, there was a thought that, you know, since they appeared healthy, um, that there is a chance that they were, you know, just kind of just, you know, enjoying the neighborhood, taking a little stroll. And um, the people that were bringing in the cats had, a different, had different thoughts concerning it. But that was the thought that was basically provided or that was what was, was, what was given, um, how would you say? That was basically what the, what the response was from the front desk at ACC. So, um, so one of the things that we learned or what, that we heard from what Oakland Animal Services is doing is that 
instead of having a blanket policy that applies to every cat, we look at it the individual circumstances. We look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, you know, we also heard stories, for example, of like a kitten or a small cat that was found at 7th and Market. That, if I remember correctly, uh, Animal Care and Control thought, oh, well, you know, they appeared to probably be maybe just a cat that had stepped away from their home. Um, but it took, you know, some of our some of our community, some of the people in the community to go out and help that cat because they felt rightfully so that the cat, you know, probably wasn't, that wasn't a very safe place for a cat. In addition to that, we also have another community member who, um, who called in for a cat to be, to be um, looked at or picked up by um, animal control officers. Um, but based on the control the officers understanding of the policy, they thought this cat was fine. Um, the reporting person felt, no, that wasn't the case, and she ended up um, helping the cat, and she found out after taking the cat to the vet that, there was a, that the cat was experience, had experience of spinal injury. So um, in addition to this, um, stories were also shared, um, and I'm thinking of um, Oakland Animal Services, um, in which um, it's not uncommon that realtors, when going to a house, Either in the process, either because they're you know they're hoping to sell it, or because someone has just bought it, and to find animals abandoned there. Um, and if it wasn't because the realtor mentioned that they were abandoned, for most cases, people would think, oh, they're probably just there enjoying themselves, or they're just out there walking around. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is the fact, and and you know this was also confirmed by by um, a few people, is that there is really no way to tell if a cat is abandoned or lost just by, by finding them or seeing them. Um, that's why I think that we need a little bit more um, uh, flexibility. We need um, a better shelter policy so that when people do bring in cats, that, that, you know, that the shelter will look into it you know, and not say, oh, just put them back basically where you found them. And you know, I, I don't know if that's the case of all the times, if that's a misunderstanding, but that is what some of um, our community members are hearing. So, I know that this might sound like it's a large impact to, to take in these cats, but based on data that was provided by SFACC, there was a number of only six cats total during the last three months, well, the, that period during three months in which, um, you know, they were, they were tracking calls. Now, I know some people may feel that that number may not be accurate, but if that is what ACC is seeing, that's only averaging about two cats per month. I think that, that we can have a policy in which we can help those two cats. So that, that is my thoughts concerning, concerning that particular recommendation. Okay? Now, um, concerning, um, and how should I go, should I go through all my, my stuff first and then people ask questions or what are, we, what are our thoughts? I just continue? I mean, we have, we have a lot of history here on each of the individual things that have happened and why we're at that. I, I think, I don't know, maybe in the trying to go through and being expedient in trying to say this is what we recommended and this is how ACC responded to the recommendations might be more useful or more might help move this along a little bit more. Okay, because, and actually that was probably my longest spiel. Okay, okay. Concerning sorry. Everything. I, I, oh, no, I just no, totally. Wanted, like, I mean, but that is probably kind of like the thing that's kind of driving everything. So I did want to make sure I did provide that information. Okay. Okay, but totally, totally understand and believe me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm 
how would you say, I'm visualizing those 30 minute, minute, minute meetings that you were talking about. So, and I know it's not gonna happen tonight, so I apologize, but yeah, I definitely, that is my goal to try and keep this as short as possible. So anyways, going on to the next item, uh, reinstate the CIP hold service or implement a similar notification process so members of the community can adopt or rescue an animal prior to him or her being euthanized. Um, this is common in so many other shelters. I think we can do it here as well. Um, I've heard a story of, of a cat being taken and is lost, but was told um, by the person, by SFACC, that, um, that they would take the cat, but the person was also concerned about whether or not the cat would be euthanized. Um, the person, the ACC told them that they could not tell them that, um, so as a result, the person took the cat with her. Um, so again, there, there's these stories as well that I think that if we had a policy in place, a better policy in place, these kind of problems wouldn't be happening. Um, and implement a policy that requires any dog or cat, including cats with tipped ears, because they can be pets, to be scanned for a microchip when they're brought to the shelter. Again, we have reports of, of animals being brought in in which um, the front desk will not scan them for, for, for chips. Uh, implement ongoing meetings in which SFACC will meet with their adoptive and rescue partners to exchange information, discuss ideas, and resolve any outstanding issues. This one is something that we've heard is done at you know, Oakland Animal Services. Um, I also know that they do it in San Jose. There's a, probably a, a lot of other um, shelters that do something similar. I think it's, it's good, regardless of who does it or who doesn't do it, I think it would be something good. I think it'll help with a lot of the mis, uh, misunderstandings that are happening right now. Um, and as I've mentioned to a number of people, I'd be willing to help with this. I have lots of experience in running meetings that can be run remotely. I don't mind helping because I want this to be done. Basically, I think it'll be better for everyone if, this is, if we have this kind of resource available. Um, and then my last recommendation beyond the reporting ones is um, create a kit with supplies and resources to help volunteers who assist the community with lost pet searches. This is um, to help with any out-of-pocket expenses um, you know, that someone who is helping, and I'm thinking of, for example, um, of, the, um, of, De of Demia, who presented at um, one of our meetings, and um, just all the expenses that people who take it upon themselves to help with this, you know, what, they, what, they, what they're taking on. Um, she has some suggestions. It's everything from equipment that could be about 200 bucks down to just basically um, tapes, tape rolls and, and protective sleeves for, for um, leaflets to put up. Um, this is probably the only recommendation that involves something out of pocket. Um, so again, you know, I would leave that to ACC as far as what kind of tests they can implement, but definitely I think some kind of, of, of um, support or resources or supplies, I should say, would be, would be very welcome. Okay, so going on to just the, the quarterly basis reports, and we're looking at things on a quarterly basis um, because that would coincide with um, our, our, um, our quarterly reports that we are currently um, having done and presented at the meetings. So anyways, um, a summary, this will be changed to a list of adoption and rescue partners who SFACC has worked with during the reporting period and a report on outcomes from meetings held with adoption and rescue partners. Uh, a list or the, a list of um, covering, or rather, I'm sorry, the number of animals microchipped during the reporting period and any recent outreach efforts to educate the community on the importance of microchipping. Next um, is a list of the number of spay neuter operations performed, both in-house as well as contradicted, I'm sorry, contracted, excuse me, with other organizations during the reporting period. Also a report on any recent 
outreach efforts to educate the community on the importance of spay and neuter. And then updates on any recent general outreach efforts, including regarding low cost and low cost resources to underserved communities. And also um, just what we'd also like to is just provide a list of all active adoption and rescue partners, uh, the policy concerning covering the criteria to be a partner, as well as um, the description of the screening and um, selection process. And then last, please also provide any policies regarding microchipping and if it's possible, the current estimate number of animals in the city believed to be microchipped. Um, so that's basically it. To me, these are all pretty common sense. They're very easy, I think, to implement. Um, I think this is what the community wants. I think this is something that probably a lot of people in SFACC would want. I think it would ultimately make it a lot more easier for animal control officers. Um, some of these reporting things, I know that that might have an impact, but heck, I'm willing, give me access, read access only, read only access to the database and I'll do the reports because I think that this will come in very happy, very helpful. We'll find this very helpful. Um, there were other things that were mentioned as a result of this and ways that we can support ACC. In fact, um, Dr. O'Neill made mention of this as well. Um, we were talking about maybe some of the resources. What can be done to allow like um, more resources for low income and low income um, dog guardians or animal guardians? Um, what can we do to help with that? Um, we were also um, looking at possibly, you know, helping with issues concerning the animal uh, control officers. And, you know, what can we do to, to help with the staffing level there? You know, it was a regular monthly update that, you know, we'd hear about the low staffing levels. And even though these are budgeted positions, they weren't being filled. We understand that there is a long process to get people in there. We also understand too, that um, there's an issue about pay. The fact is that they make less than our, than our park rangers. They make less than um, dispatchers. And you know, it, it's a difficult job. So you know, I'd like to see what the commission can do as well to help with that. And I have, been, uh, you know, I have talked to the city administrator's office about it before, um, but I don't mind bringing in the union representatives as well. I was a shop steward. I've been on negotiating tables. I, I, you know, I'm not saying that I, I can help to any great extent, but I'm willing to, to do something because I, I think that, that that's something that's really needed. So anyways, I guess that that's pretty much what I have to say. Um, I know that um, there's probably some questions. I'm sure that there's some public comments. Um, but again, I just want to say that this is something I think is very important. We've spent a lot of time on this. I, I think that this is, is, I mean, I think, I find, I don't find, I don't believe that there's anyone who would disagree with this. Now, maybe people might have different thoughts concerning it, but these are all good things. And these are all things that will help everyone. So uh, that's all for me for right now. Um, I'd like to open it up to the commission for any kind of questions or, you know, so we can discuss. Okay, thank you. Um, I, well, I still want to get back to Deputy Director Corso's response to these yes. recommendations because I do believe she's addressed a number of them. And in fairness to her, let's, let's get started with the recommendations. I'm sure everybody's eager to hear these as well, too. So thank you so much. Sure. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. Um, you, you can start one by one about their first, the recommendation about allowing healthy cats and kittens to be accepted into the shelter on a case by case. So 
Sure. So th this is this actually is the policy in place at SFACC right now. It is on a case by case um, basis. Um, so I'll just I'll go ahead and read what I wrote. Every situation involving cat is assessed to determine the best pathway to meet that individual's needs, which could include return to field, leave in place with a referral to community cat program for spay neuter, or admission to the shelter. Um, I did attach the cat matrix, which kind of shows, you know, the breakdown, kind of which way you go for each situation. Of course, there may be, you know, a random one-off situation that's not on there, but that kind of gives you the, the general sense. I did note that this practice is in alignment with many national, state, and regional organizations. Um, it's based on established research and represents evidence-based approach. Um, Yeah, sorry, I didn't bring copies for everybody as far as the other documents, but. Um. And what I'd like to do is after each thing, after each item, I'd like to comment as well. So sure, all you comment? Go okay, ahead. great. So yeah. are you, okay. So anyways, a couple things. One is, um, this sounds great, but we're not seeing it happen, it sounds like. And, and so what I want to do is I want to go on record as recommending that this, that this does happen. Now, it could be that maybe it's a matter of training. It could be, you know, any number of reasons. It could be the one-offs as well. And, you know, I have, I have complete faith in you. I mean, it could, honestly, it could also be a difference of opinion. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Could, I mean, yeah, we, very much so. we, you know, look at our matrix and, you know, everything's subjective, right? You have someone in the field, you and I could be looking at the same thing and see it slightly different. Yes, right? I agree, yeah. Um, but this is, you know, being someone who's in the shelter every day, and especially someone who prior to going on maternity leave was in the squad room every day. I hear every call, I, every call I pay attention, my radio's on. This is happening. Um, you know, and it's hard when we have these, these stories that come in, but I don't have something I can particularly reference, right? It's just this anecdotal story, you know, I, I don't have, there's no call in regards to this. I have nothing to, to look up and address it. When I do, we absolutely do. And we will look into it. But I can tell you as someone who's in the shelter, this is happening. Okay. Um, and what I was gonna mention as well is, yeah, I know that some of the information I gave is anecdotal. And I mean, I, I totally don't accept or, um, I know that you can't really respond to that. But I'm just giving up these situations that we had heard about during the presentation. But still, there is the fact that there are six calls that were documented during the period of October through November, to December, excuse me. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, for example, there's one in which uh, a cat was healthy and had a collar on, so not injured or sick. That was what was viewed. Um, is there anything more that could have been done? Um, healthy cat under a car. I mean, what, what exactly does that mean? And again, you know, I know you, you, you have the expertise, and I'm not doubting anyone as far as the information they put there, but I just wonder if more could be done and if it could be done via a, a revision of the policy. Great, thank you. Perfect, thank you so much. And again, these are the technical difficulties, unfortunately, that we're probably gonna experience. So thank you very much, Elena. Anyways, I apologize. Continue. Okay. okay. I missed the last. I was focused okay. on this now. So. <laughs> okay. So, anyways, yeah. So I was just saying, you know, um, you know, I 
just again, you know, based on what I'm hearing, it's it's not happening completely, and that's why I, I want us to go on record as saying, you know, that 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 you know something needs to be done. Now, granted, maybe steps have been done, and we can acknowledge that as well. But you know, again, I I think that we need to do something about the policy. Any questions or anything else? And I'm sorry, I don't mean to take your if you have anything more to say, um, Deputy Director Corso. No. Okay. Okay. Do you want to go on to the next to the next sure. item? Thank you so much. Okay, so as far as reinstating the CIP, so this was this is kind of a semantics issue. Um, we welcome interest from finders of lost animals. Um, however, there are circumstances in which the department must first perform due diligence to ensure it's ethical and responsible to place an animal with any interested party. Uh, the Good Samaritan Call and Finder to Adopt Holds are both avenues made available for the public to learn more about an animal brought into the shelter. The adoption partner interest, and I believe I uh, provided both of these SOPs as well. Um, in 2019, the decision was made to discontinue the traditional call interested party hold. This change of wording was made to decrease confusion for members of the public about SFACC's retention of decision-making abilities for animals in care. Adoption partners may still contact us directly to express interest in an animal, and that is honored through internal processes. We do have over 100 adoption partners whom we proactively reach out to with animals that meet their criteria and are safe for placement. Um, I think it's important to remember that we, you know, we have to respond to safety. We, we, there's safety issues that we are responsible for for the public. So we have to consider you know, is this animal safe to place in the public along with, does it meet the criteria of this rescue? Does it meet the criteria of, of that rescue? You know, so I can tell you staff works tirelessly to, to do this and get the best pathway, best outcome for each animal that comes through our doors. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, I did have a question. I understand that um, the, the CIP hold was, um, uh, discontinued in 2019. When was the Good Samaritan call and finder to adopt? When was that implemented? Um, I think if you look at, should say the first, when the first iteration was made on the bottom of the uh, form, the SOP. So it was the first draft was in 2020 as they were, they were changing it. So the first draft was actually written up as we made the transition to, to that verbiage. Okay, so I see that, okay, so it was, so, the, so this draft was, was um, so it was a draft in 2020, updated in um, June 2021, mm -hmm. and then there's, there's other dates as well up to September 2022. But, so uh, was this actually implemented about the time of that first draft or was it implemented during the course of these revisions? Um, I would have to um, go back and, and check with someone who knows better than I do. Um, yeah. I can say at no time um, do I ever recall us not taking, you know, taking interested parties, giving them information and taking all that in. Again, the CIP hold was confusing to the general public in, they, in that they thought they kind of had control over what happens with that animal. Yeah, um, and I guess what I'm trying to ask is, um, are are members of the are, is the community aware that this is that this that this is an option? The Good Samaritan call and finder to adopt. They're 
they're made aware, if they, if they express interest like the CIP hold, they are made aware of these two. Okay. So, you know, so that's great. That's wonderful. It sounds like it's basically the same, except as you said, semantics. It is. It's, it's semantics. It, okay, it is great. the same exact thing. It's just changing the wording to try to make it clearer. Okay. So basically that, that's a recommendation that, that, we're, that we're working, that we're meeting. Right. So again, I, I see that as something. Again, I'd like to go on record as as that recommendation. We're showing that it's being done. That's great. Again, that can be within the letter that that we write up. Okay. So, okay. I appreciate that. Thank you. Can I ask a question on that on that note? Just because I'm I'm not completely clear what. Um, the current policy is if I'm a uh, <clears throat> citizen who finds a five-month-old fractious kitty um, or a one-year-old angry dog and um, I don't want it to be euthanized um, but want to try and make sure that nobody's missing it or give it a chance to get into the 100 potential adoption partners. Um, is there a possibility that if I take that animal in and relinquish it to ACC, that at the end of the day, I might not be able to get it back um, if they deem that behaviorally it's not um, a prime adoptable one? Um, and again, just under the current policy, how does that scenario play out? I mean, it, it's really hard to to speak to just you know some random scenario. Um, is it possible that you know if if it you have a really aggressive dog that's not safe to release to the public? Yeah, you know we're we're also a public safety agency, so yes, that has to be taken into account. Um, we do everything we can to um, find owners. So to your first point of you know finding owners, uh, our staff is always on paw boost but we're also merging our software with theirs so there's going to be that integration really soon um, we scan for microchips and we do that multiple times so not just on intake and just just for clarification because someone said something about the front counter scanning for microchips um, due to safety issues we do not have our shelter service reps scan once the animal care attendant takes them on intake that's when they scan um, so that's not done at the front counter. But along the way, as medical staff gets hands on the animal, um, they're scanned again. I mean, multiple times throughout they're scanned. And if it's an animal that's coming in from the field, um, if it's safe to do so in the field, if time allows, the animal control officers do that in the field, and when possible, we'll do a field redemption as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's case by case, you know? Um, and like I said, we have a responsibility to the public as far as safety is concerned too. Um, but, you know, we exhaust all avenues. And just to clarify, with the public safety issue, if it's a Rottweiler, it's one thing. But if it's an eight pound Chihuahua who's got a bad attitude um, and it's not going to be a public safety threat, but it's certainly not prime adoptability, and I take it and say, hey, CC, here's this dog. Is there a chance that it will be euthanized without me getting the chance to bring it 
back to my own, you know, that that's care. you know that I it's again it's hard with you giving giving scenarios but what I can tell you is there's a difference in the amount of rescue, you know, adoption partners that will take, you know, a little bitey chihuahua versus a big aggressive dog. You know, so small aggressive dog there's there's way more adoption partners who that fits their criteria. Through us, they're not adoptable out, right? But through other adoption partners, that fits their criteria. They will take behavior cases. And again, that's a lot easier to find for small dogs, but there are ones for the large dogs as well. So again, it's, it's case by case. It's who has availability, you know, it, the shelters, the municipal shelters are not the only ones struggling right now with the amount of animals we have. Um, all of our adoption partners are feeling the strain too. Um, but again, we're really lucky in that we have over a hundred and we have a great network and even, you know, different states and we do a really good job of getting animals out of our shelter and into places that um, suit their needs. I, I think you guys are doing excellent in terms of your, your placement rate. Um, again, I think my question just more goes to, um, we, we, we listened for many hours on the commission before you got here about one particular case um, where a dog was brought into ACC. They were not made aware that if they dropped it off, they might not be able to get it back. And um, when the dog was euthanized, it, it led to a lot of controversy. And I was just curious as to whether or not any of the policies have, have changed so that um, if there's not a CIP, is there some sort of a way that an interested party will at least know before a dog is euthanized? Well, that, that would fall under the good SAM policy, okay. right? So they can call and check and we will call and let them know. So, you know, while the, while the animals stay there, they can feel free to call and check at any point. We give the animal identification number. Um, and when there's an outcome, if they would like to know the outcome, then staff will call them. And from what I can see, the dates on when I remember those meetings happening, in particular with that dog, that predates the policy change. So the policy change, I believe, the Good Samaritan policy was a clarification of the call interested party. So I do believe that there has been a shift in language, but maybe communication of that language is not, it's not something people know about as much as they knew call interested party. Um, but but there are other, you know, certainly other concerns that someone might have if they do bring in an animal, if, if there are medical issues that extend beyond what ACC is capable of doing. Um, I'm hoping, too, that that Good Samaritan is notified of what those costs might be so they can either, oh, A, absolutely. fundraise on behalf of that animal or, do, B, donate on behalf of their Absolutely, and we've things. had, you know, aside from, you know, our adoption partners who take in um, medical cases. Um, with some grants that we've had in the past, we've actually brought surgeons into ACC to perform these like orthopedic surgeries mostly in those cases. Um, but yeah, we've had, we have had members of the public, you know, go on to adopt that animal knowing potentially astronomical costs. So that has happened. Thanks. Okay, um, thank you for the clarification concerning the front counter. And if you wanna continue on. Sure. Uh, so I believe I touched on this a bit, but as far as um, requiring any cat or dog 
to be scanned for microchip. I mean, we do that. We do that at multiple points in the shelter. We do that in the field. Sorry. Okay, so microchipping. Um, we do that at multiple points in the shelter. Intake, when vet staff gets hands on them, if behavior and training, it, it happens multiple times. It also happens in the field by our animal control officers. But again, that's as time allows. If they're picking up one animal and there's an emergency with another one, they're gonna split and do that and wait till they get back to the shelter and impound to then um, microchip. Um, and just to point out some rabbits are microchipped sometimes, so we also scan rabbits. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I attached that policy, I believe, as well. Questions, or do you want me to go on to the next one? Yes, please. Next one? Yes, Okay. thank you. So implement ongoing meetings in SFACC. Um, we'll meet with their adoption and rescue partners to exchange information, discuss ideas, and resolve any outstanding issues. And here's my response. Uh, given the current climate in which we find the shelter is over capacity regularly, transfers to adoption partners are essential moving animals out of the shelter and providing the best care and outcome possible. This network of partners, 95 of which were active in calendar year 2022, and I presented you with that list as well, has grown over the years to include a wide range of options for animals who fit different criteria for transfer and ranges from local to all across the Northwest, Southwest, and even to Idaho and Minnesota. Coordinating transfers is a daily process that requires trust and communication on both ends of the journey. The staff tasked with pathway planning spend a great deal of time in open and direct communication with partners and value and respect these relationships. Any issues that may arise are addressed promptly. Additionally, many of our partners are connected and network with each other to help an animal through the shelter and into a stable environment more suited to their needs. It is rarely an isolated conversation and what we are doing is working. Despite national shortages of placements and destination shelters, we have continued placing animals successfully and maintain a live release rate above 90%. That takes a village which we are proud to be a part of. SFACC has established criteria for transfer partners to ensure a successful partnership and have an understanding that both parties will act professionally and in good faith. Unfortunately, and very rarely, SFACC has had to discontinue partnering with some organizations either due to welfare concerns or other irreconcilable differences. So I've attached our adoption partner application and agreement. I've attached the uh, calendar year 2022 partner transfer list. And I've also attached the in-shelter pathway planning documents, which just gives you a little more insight about you know, what that looks like getting them to, to our adoption partners, uh, et cetera. Okay. Um, I did wanna mention that um, I know you provided all these documents. Um, but I know myself, I only looked at them briefly. I didn't really have a lot of time to look at them, and I'm sure the same with the commissioners. Um, but I will review them and let you know later if there are any questions. My, m m the reason for this particular um, recommendation um, was kind of following along the lines of like what I've heard other shelters are doing, where they basically have meetings with some of their rescue partners, basically to go over any under misunderstandings, go over any issues, maybe any updates, any kind of changes. Um, now, I know that many of them have, uh, you know, partners that maybe this wouldn't be something that they'd be interested in, or maybe something that basically because of they're physically in another state, it may not be something that they are, you know, that they could do, that they could attend. But, 
you know, from what I understand, there has been some really good outcomes from some of these conversations. And that's why I'm wondering would, you know, why I'm recommending that, that something like this does happen. Some type of, 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 of a gathering, if you will, and whether it's monthly or, you know, or bi-monthly or by, by, but I hate to think weekly, but even if it was that, um, you know, that, that there is that, that option for people to attend, to, to get information. And if there is any particular issue that has come up, that would be a good way to, to address it and to discuss it. Um, I'm thinking, for example, I mean, I've heard of like um, some organizations, some rescue partners who basically as a result of maybe talking at this commission or providing information, they feel that they're not being called upon as much by SFACC. And you know, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, I, I don't doubt what I've been told, but I don't know the reasons why. Maybe there's some other type of reason for it. But these particular types of gatherings would allow um, those kind of conversations to take place. Um, and it would allow, hopefully, stop any kind of anger or frustrations from growing, which can you know, just be unproductive. Um, so that's the reason for this particular type of, 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 of request or why we're making this recommendation. Um, meanwhile, if there are any kind of concerns or questions or anything that like we hear about in the commission, we can, I'm assuming that we can go to you or to someone else in ACC and say, hey, we're hearing about this type of, you know, this kind of situation. Can we get some more information or can you look into it? Yeah, I mean, okay, feel, feel, free to, feel free to come to me and, and ask me and when I can help, I absolutely will. Um, but, you know, let me just point out, like I said, you know, we've ha we had 95 active adoption partners last year. Our total list is, I think it's up to about 155 right now. Now, realize some of those weren't active because you have some that's like Weimar Reiner Rescue, you know, and we don't get many of those in. So there, there's a lot that may not have been active in that calendar year, but they are still approved. They're on our list. If we need them, we can reach out to them. If, you know, if we have an animal that meets their criteria, et cetera. And again, we have that many that are successful in working with us, and we have an open dialogue. Do I think issues should wait to be resolved till a monthly meeting? Absolutely not. It's gotta be then and there. We have an animal that needs help now. So, you know, again, we have more than the average shelter does as far as adoption partners. And, you know, sure, it doesn't work out with maybe some other adoption partners for whatever reasons. And again, that's not my area. You know, I come from field services. I've only been, you know, in the deputy director position for a couple months, so I am learning all this, but I'm not privy to all of that yet. Um, but again, I do want to point out there may be a few with complaints, but we have over 100 that we work with successfully. Just want to throw that out there. Okay, understood. But you know, again, just one last thing. Um, I, I think that these would be very beneficial, and that's the reason why I'm making the recommendation that that we do have these meetings. And these meetings, of course, you know, as I said, they could be monthly. They could be, you know, just whenever it, the need arises. And I'm definitely not saying that any issues should wait for that next meeting if it's held on a monthly basis. They should be addressed beforehand. But I think being in this type of environment and having those those meetings happen, it, it'll maybe make people a little bit more familiar with the people to know. And it'll maybe make them a little bit more comfortable to bring up these issues. Both issues that maybe ACC is having with, with you know, organizations or with partners, or as well as the partners are having with others too, so. So thank you.
Are we, we're on five, correct? Okay. So create a kit with supplies and resources to help volunteers who assist the community with lost pet searches. So um, first place you can go is to our website. Uh, we have lots of help, helpful tips um, regarding uh, lost pet searches on our website, and I included the link. Um, I mentioned, I think, twice now uh, that the Paw Boost merge with our software is coming very soon. And additionally, we're working on a volunteer job description to aid in reunification efforts, um, which would be via our lost and found reports at the shelter, um, as well as social media and portal postings. Um, so, okay. and our website's a very useful tool. And what this was, was, you know, something similar, and I don't know, I don't remember offhand what it was, but we have the, there's that, like, kitten kit that you have. Something similar like that. That's what I was envisioning that would have instead supplies or whatever it could have to help some of the people that are doing some of these lost animal searches. And again, you know, this is the only thing that really would involve some kind of a cost. So that's why I'm kind of leaving it open. It's just a recommendation. It's, it's, it's definitely not as high on the recommendation list as the other ones, but this is something I thought would be helpful. And again, you know, um, I have, a list of different things that, that some of the people involved in this kind of volunteer work have said, oh, this would be great if we could get it. And, and they were not the ones that are asking for it. I was the one who said, wouldn't it be great if we could have this? What would be, what would be in your, what would, what would you envision it being? So I definitely want to make it sound, you know, I want to point out that it's not them asking, it's just something I thought would be helpful for the community. So I just wanted to give some, some feedback as far as why that is. And again, I would, I would, I would ask the commissioners to consider it because I think that it could be something that would be very valuable. And again, it would be up to um, ACC's discretion as far as what they would include in this kit. Okay, thank you. Can, can yes. I make a quick comment? Oh, sorry, no, 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 go, 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 go ahead. No. I, I was just gonna say, I, I, I agree that um, after listening to Damia, Damia speak on this topic of how much money she put into just finding lost cats, I was, I was saddened and impressed at the same time. I, I equally, you know, stunned at how much work she has to do. Um, one thing that I think could help with somebody who's out there in the field like that and if is providing them with a, a scanner so that they, because they're kind of boots on the ground there working directly with people who have lost pets or, ha or know of um, a pet that's in someone's backyard or something, and I think they could actually do well because... We can tell um, somebody that, okay, if ACC isn't available or open to do that, you can go to your vet, but who's gonna pick up the cat they don't know in the backyard and take it to a vet they don't know because they don't even have a pet. So um, Damia is a good resource or people she knows or her network or whatever to be able to be on the field to look at that. Um, and if there's costs associated with that that extend beyond ACC's budget, I'd be happy to help her. I was trying to think of ways that we could support her because she's just every, I mean, I mean, you all really have been done, doing so much. But um, anyway, so, so that's an example of being able to help somebody and also being able to extend the idea that ACC is the only one who can identify the lost pet doesn't have the wand, that there are other people out there with a wand, and not that it's perfect, but trained to use it to be able to tell. So just one suggestion, sorry. Thank you, Commissioner Tobin. And Commissioner Rosene? Um, I'm actually looking at your response, um, Director 
Corso about the volunteer job description to aid in reunification efforts. Um, and I'm wondering if there's a way to sort of get a bigger working group, like a, a working group of people who are interested in helping, who do have the time to volunteer, and who can start networking and creating uh, what Commissioner Tobin was saying, kind of like a larger framework, so that if, you know, if someone like Damia is unavailable or this volunteer, one volunteer is unavailable, that the, the animals don't fall through the cracks. So kind of like building the community um, and kind of opening it up to other volunteers to come forward um, to, to, to participate in, in that kind of effort. Thank you, um, Commissioner Ozenoy. And that could also kind of tie in with the previous recommendation, which was about the community meetings. I mean, it doesn't necessarily just have to be rescue partners that attend. It could be anyone who, who's basically helping or volunteering on their own or working with um, SFACC. And basically just a way to you know, acknowledge them, but also to provide information to make them feel that they're part of a network and part of a community to, to do these things. Yeah, I think that, um you know, feeling like you have the support of ACC behind you, I think would empower a lot more people to step up and do more um, volunteering. And I think it would help rebuild whatever, you know, trust between the community and ACC that, that has been perhaps affected over the last couple of months. Yes, wonderfully put. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, there's only one last comment I would make too. First off, I just wanna thank you very much for continuing to work with Paw Boost and other social media outlets as well on this issue because I think um, that's a big step and that, that sort of came out of the discussions that people had here. So um, great work to connect that to Chameleon. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, that, uh, my understanding is that is um, like a new, something that's newly available being able you know, to connect those two. Um, but like I said, you know, not just as an agency, but just as animal nerds, right. <laughs> we are always, uh, you know, looking at this in our own spare time. You know what I mean? Like I've come in before and, you know, seen a volunteer with dog and I'm like, oh my God, I saw that on my Facebook feed today. That was a paw boost. And we go back and look. So, I mean, that's all staff. I mean, you know, so... Thank you. Sure. Do you want to go yes, on to the? you can continue these? on, yeah. Why don't we just cover those real briefly? Sure. Um, so a summary of the adoption and uh, rescue partners from ACC has worked with during the reporting period. I, I provided that. Um, and reports and outcomes from meetings held with um, adoption and rescue partners. Again, um, you know, our behavior and training team are, um, and our, and our uh, adoption coordinator, they are constantly in contact with, with these adoption partners. Um, and so outcomes from meetings, that's, that might be hard <laughs> to provide. This is daily communication many times a day. Um, and again, as, as I said, over 100 partners. Um, but I did provide you um, the, the list of those that were active in calendar year 2022 and the number of species that uh, each of them uh, took. Next one. Um, yes, actually, I was going to say, yeah, and I apologize. What I meant or what this was meant to say was uh, report on outcomes from meetings 
from like that one monthly meeting I was referring to that regular meeting. It wasn't like every single meeting. It was just basically if you do have a group meeting. Understood. Yeah, okay, so okay. I apologize for that confusion. That's okay. That's okay. Also too, um, I put down originally a summary of the adoption and rescue partners. It was basically just a list, so I, I wanted to be more clear about that as well. Well, and this so. is, the, what I provided you is basically a list. And that's a list that amongst the stuff you've sent us today, right? Yes, correct. Okay, great, thank yeah, you. Yeah, sorry, I tried to pull it together as quickly no, as no, I could. Understood, completely understood, thank you. Uh, moving on, uh, summary covering the number of animals microchipped during the reporting period and any recent outreach efforts to educate the community on the importance of microchipping. Uh, so per recent legislation, animals leaving the shelter regardless of impound status are microchipped. Um, currently, SFACC, uh, Friends of SFACC, uh, has not been able to secure any veterinary volunteers to staff the low-cost rabies clinic um, that occurred quarterly prior to the pandemic, and microchipping was available at these clinics. Um, so that will be available again should that service uh, be reestablished in the future. Um, the, the benefits of microchipping are included on our website. We do educate the community. Um, I may say this somewhere else in here, but um, you know the ACOs all the time. Um, if they're out in the field talking, you know, they're, they're constantly educating the public. And I would say, you know, spay, neuter, microchipping are probably the two topics that come up most often. Um, but again, if an animal comes into our shelter, it's leaving with that microchip. I've seen recently, again, I'll bring up Oakland Animal Services, where they're having an event um, sometime this month in which they're having low cost or no cost, maybe even, um, rabies. Um, spay neuter and microchipping and you know they're they're somehow able to do it I'm not saying you know that SFACC is not trying to do it as well but you know part of this as well is that conversation as a result of you know of this list or this uh, the number of animals microchipped as well as the next item is what can we do to, to provide those services as well here and I know that um, Commissioner Tobin when we talked you kind of mentioned some of these things as well and that would be also a carryover from the recommendations being supported, is that you know if these things are done, if there's issues, we know about it, and we can go ahead and, and do what we need to do to try and hopefully address them or try to you know bring about the resources. Now, you know, I'm not saying you know. Well, let me just say we'll work hard to try and do so. So you know, so again, you know, I just wanted to kind of point that out as far as you know that. Thank you. A summary of the number of spay-neuter operations performed, both in-house as well as contracted with other organizations during the reporting period. Also a report on any recent outreach efforts to educate the community on the importance of spay-neuter. Uh, this, I believe, is I was told, is provided in the quarterly report. I've looked at what it looks like before, so that's, that's included. Um, the benefits of spay-neuter are found on our website. Um, it's not, spay-neuter is not a service that we provide to the public um, as far as you know, well, let me keep going before I keep interject, but ACOs provide outreach and education on a daily basis with spay, neuter, and microchipping being two of the most common topics. Not only do they educate about the importance of spay, neuter, but when appropriate, they offer vouchers for free spay, neuter that can be redeemed at the SFSPCA. Um, Thank you. Sure. Do you want me to move on to the next one? Or yes, questions? unless okay. there's any questions, I think we can move on. Thank you. Um, updates on any recent general outreach efforts, especially regarding no cost and low cost resources to underserved communities. 
So SFACC does not provide veterinary services to the public. However, we are negotiating a contract with Vets and Vans to provide low-cost services in the space adjacent uh, to the shelter. We also regularly refer clients to low and no-cost service providers, including Full Belly Bus and Vet SOS. Full Belly Bus also distributes uh, pet food at the shelter monthly in partnership with SFACC and Friends of SFACC. Um, and I, you know, I think this is important to know, but it should be noted that SFACC has been seeking a contract with an emergency veterinary clinic for the past 18 months without receiving any bids. This process is ongoing. The lack of access to veterinary care in San Francisco is a huge problem. And this is part of our problem of being able to provide, you know, assist in providing these clinics. Um, so it's not just ACC that's having trouble with veterinary services, it's the whole city. Um, it's probably more appropriate to say the Bay Area in general. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Van Horn can speak to this as well. Yeah, we've discussed it at length in, the, in recent months and we're in a bad place. Please provide a list of all active adoption and rescue partners and the policy covering the criteria to be a partner organization and description of the selection screening process. Um, so I've given you some good information that I, that I had attached, the adoption partner application and agreement, calendar year partner transfers. Um, again, that's that list and it lists the active um, adoption partners in calendar year 2022 along with which species they pulled. And then our in-shelter pathway planning documents was provided, and again, that'll give you more um, information. Okay, great. Do any commissioners have any questions or anything? Okay, I guess we can probably open it up to public comment. Um, there are a couple things I will say after public comment before the vote, but I think we can hear public comment now. Um, so in-person public comment, anyone who wants to go up? Okay. Uh, we're going to be, go on, I'm sorry, go on. I just wanted to make kind of a little announcement. We're actually kind of um, doing things a little bit different here. Um, generally, when people do make public comment, there is a mechanism in which a timer will go off and, and kind of keep time for you. We're going to do it old school style because <laughs> we don't want to go up and back between the podium to do so. So are you okay, um, Commissioner Tobin, with doing the timing? Okay, so you have two minutes when you're okay. ready to start. And then minutes? We'll Wait a second. I thought you said three. No, two minutes. We'll okay, hold two on minutes. one second. Let me change yeah. that old school Sorry style. Sorry about that. Yeah. Hold on. And I have a, I have my little thing here as well if you want me to be back up. Or... Uh, Thank no, you for your patience, Maria. Okay. Are you ready, Maria? I want my full two minutes. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'm playing. I'm, you're on. <laughs> all right. One, well, you all... two, three, go. <laughs> all right. You all know me, Maria Conlon with Give Me Shelter Cat Rescue. Um, just wanted to thank Commissioner Torres for bringing this forward. Really appreciate working with you, and uh, you are always respectful. So thank you for that. Um, and I wanted to just say that you know, in regards to particularly the cat um, policy at ACC, that you know, people are not making up stories about finding cats or kittens. These are not stories that we presented. Um, I, in fact, was the one that went and picked up the cat on 7th and Market that was running in traffic that was called. Um, somebody called ACC and said the cat was running in traffic, and nobody, and they said the cat was okay, and I went and picked up the cat from 7th and Market hiding in a storefront. 
So those are the kinds of things that happen. Um, now that ACC is tracking the calls, I agree. Six, call, six calls is like nothing for them to add. Whereas like for a small rescue like Gimme Shelter, taking up six cats is, is a little more significant. Um, and, and, and in fact, Gimme Shelter gets a lot of calls about cats and kittens that are rejected by ACC. Um, I would also like to address the science, because one thing we know about science, ACC keeps saying, and other shelters keep saying, that there's this science that backs up the decisions that they're making. But as we know, science evolves, and we learn sometimes that science makes bad decisions, and wow, we should have never done that with science. Um, and I feel like it's ethically and morally wrong to be leaving these cats outside when you have the option of a shelter and space to be able to take them in. I know there are other shelters in the Central Valley that we take cats from. Maybe they don't, and maybe the cats would be killed if they were going to go in there. But they have the option here in San Francisco to be inside rather than on the streets. We have that option. The other thing I'd just like to address is the confusion around the CIP. Um, I keep hearing that word that there's confusion around it. I don't think there was any confusion around it. I think people brought in the animal and they wanted to be able to help the animal and the good Sam is not the same. So, thank you. Thank you, Maria. Any more public comments in person? Hi, um, Nadine May. Um, I want to thank the commission for listening to everything that we've been saying, we members of the community have been saying about the issues, any issues with ACC. We are concerned with animals. We're not enemies. People in the rescue community do fostering, they do socializing, they do rescue, they do trapping, they do all of this out of, it, nothing comes from anybody else, it's all out of our own pockets. And we very rarely get thanked for it. I have never been thanked by anybody at ACC for all the animals that I've brought in off the street. That's just an example. I wanted to continue with what Maria said um, regarding the CIP. Adoption partner is not the same as an individual. Commissioner Corso, who brings in an animal. I've brought in many animals, put the CIP on them, and I've saved at least three cats who were scheduled to be euthanized. Nobody would have taken, no adoption partner would have taken the cats, even though, you know, they were relatively easy things to, re to resolve. One was a cat that reacted to other cats, and one was a cat that had a flea allergy. They were scheduled to be euthanized. They're now in good homes because I was able to go and say, okay, you called me, I brought in the cat, you called me, I'm here to pick up the cat. No questions asked. Um, regarding microchipping, I beg to differ with what you said. If the animals are accepted, they are scanned. If people bring cats or animals to the shelter and they are not accepted, they are not scanned. Thank you. Thank you. Any other um, public comments? Yes. Um, I'm Elva Granite, and thank you for your ear. 
Um, for over 10 years, I've tamed and socialized hundreds of cats for SFSBCA and ACC. I continue to do so for G Give Me Shelter res Cat Rescue. Because ACC has not properly educated the public, there are already troubling issues arising, though it's not kitten season. Last month, I was aware of nine kittens that members of the public let become over the age of four months before seeking assistance to trap and socialize them, all of which were at an age where they could have produced more kittens, at least those who were spayed or they were spayed or neutered. I'm socializing two 10-month-old cats that if ACC had let volunteers socialize for two or three weeks in their near-empty cat facility would not have been adopted, and they would now be adopted in, in homes five or six months ago. Cat facilities are being used to house rabbits and guinea pigs, while cats and kittens are left out in the cold and the rain. ACC is causing taxpayers to expand, expend time and money housing, feeding, and socializing cats in their own homes, while a brand new animal care building is often more than half empty. Many members of the public do not have the skills or ability to shelter animals that belong in 1419 Bryant Street. We cannot save every cat and kitten, but ACC has continued increasingly to act like a privately run boarding facility and privately run veterinary practice that picks and chooses animals to care for through misleading data, inaccurate behavior assessments, discontinuing effective programs, domestic cats, tame or not tame, are increasingly being left to procreate and then try to survive outdoors. So I hope we can have some policy changes that go back to effective programs we've had in the past. Thank you. Thank you, Alba. Any other in-person public comment? Hi there, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate your opinion and your experiences. Um, unfortunately, not being part of a big organization, um, just a small rescue, I don't have a lot of data I can give you, but I do have my experiences. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the uh, recommendations um, I find to not be in practice at this moment in time um, with ACC. Um, I can also say from experience that I've had wonderful experience with ACOs. <laughs> so that has always been wonderful. I've had sick kittens um, taken from my home and getting emergency care. Um, unfortunately though, my experience with the front desk have been very different. So that is my experience, that is what I can report. I can also say being a part of a small rescue, I have gotten seven emails just this month about cats that needed help. Um, that people were not willing to bring them to ACC because they were worried about euthanasia, they were worried about being rejected, they had heard that ACC does not take cats anymore. So just in this meeting now, I got two more texts about cats that need help. So there are cats out there that definitely need help. ACC, I think, is you know, able and definitely can be a player in helping these cats. And I think that's what we all want, and we just want to see it happen. So thank you all so much. Thank you. Any other in-person public comments? I, was, I just want to say as a volunteer with the rescue, I've always been thanked when I pick up animals there, and I feel that the staff there does a very good job. Thank you very much, sir. Are there any other um, in-person comments? Anyone else? 
Okay, we're going to close in-person comments and we're going to go to remote. Let me see if we have or how many people we have in the queue. I am not showing anyone who who wants to make public uh, remote public comment. Let me make the announcement one more time. If there is anyone who is on the phone and would like to make a comment at this time, please hit star three to be added to the speaker's queue. Okay, uh, we are not seeing any hands. Um, we see a number of people you know, who are attending, but we're not seeing any hands. And you know, I'm hoping that this maybe isn't, a, as I mentioned before, that um, you know, this isn't some kind of a, a technical difficulty. As I mentioned, we're using new equipment and a brand new meeting format. Um, that I'm hoping that it's just not appearing. I am refreshing the screen one more time. Okay, and again, I am not seeing any hands, so I think we can... can yes. I make one suggestion. If there are people out there who did intend to make a comment, just send it in writing, and we can include it in the um, documentation that goes with this meeting. Yes, very good suggestion. Thank you. Commissioner Tobin? Okay, so we are going to close public comment. Okay, um, before we go and we take the vote, I just wanted to mention a couple more things, please. Um, I just want to, just based on the, the public comments that we've heard right now, I think, I, I, I definitely agree that these recommendations are needed based on circumstances. Um, I think that, you know, again, that there are no nonsense steps. Uh, I can't imagine anyone disagreeing with them. We already see where steps are hopefully being taken, where we're being told steps towards them are being taken. Um, having this as a recommendation is something that, I, that we can refer back to. Um, it's also, it's basically the, the, the completed, uh, the end of, our, of, our, of all of our presentations and discussions concerning this matter. And as I mentioned before, the commission will work to do what we can concerning resources and trying to do what we can to, to help with the implementation of these, of these policies or of these um, recommendations. Um, one of the things I did want to mention that, um, that um, Dr. O'Neill had mentioned um, when she left was about the amount of time that um, our, um, our monthly um, updates took. Well, I will work with um, Deputy Director Corso as far as how we want to address that in the future. Um, it may be just quarterly, but just to let everybody know, the way that these um, segments, if you will, or these meetings, these items were, gonna, were originally 
envisioned was that we were gonna have quarterly reports, and this was a, a time period that worked for both SFACC as well as the commission, and we worked on what the data would have. But between those quarterly reports were supposed to be updates, announcements, um, any kind of news from SFACC. Um, every commission representative from the department has the ability, have the flexibility to, to kind of tailor these segments or these agenda items to what they, what they think is best. And you know, during the time I've been here for three and a half years, we've had a change of four times with the representatives. So of course, maybe things have gotten lost during that time. So I would look to working with um, Director, um, Deputy Director Corso to make sure that we have the time and the resources to implement, if we should so choose to support the recommendations, any of these additional reportings, okay? Uh, I would say though that definitely I miss um, when we did have those announcements during the meetings because I get the newsletter from the friends of ACC and I see some wonderful things there that I wish were, were, were talked about at the meeting. So, you know, I know that um, um, Dr. O'Neill took it to a, a different area. She provided um, quarterly numbers as well as the monthly updates concerning those numbers. So we kind of got like mini reports, but you know, and we can do that as well. But what I would really would much rather have is just, you know, some, some good news, some information. Um, something, basically some um, interaction with the community as far as the different things that are happening. I think that would be a lot of fun and I think that it would be very enjoyable. So, um, as I mentioned before, yes. Let me just double check them. Do you know um, their name, for example? Nobody knows. Yes, Rebecca Ward, Evelyn Engel, and Damia Poti. Okay, I see, and you know, I, yeah, I see, I see two of them. Um, we can, we'll open it up for public comment. Um, I'll go ahead and just finish this up. Um, and again, this is probably one of the technical difficulties because we're looking at the screen and we do not see any raised hands showing, indicating anyone wanting to make a public comment. So I apologize to anyone, but as Commissioner Tobin said, yes, please, if we don't get to your comments, please submit them, okay? And we will include that with our records. And again, I really apologize for this, okay? So anyways, just one last thing before we do open it up. To the the to the speakers that we know would like to make public comment, um, is that if we do support, if we do pass, or we do vote in support of this, as I mentioned, I will work with um, uh, the city um, administrator's office to make sure we have the resources. I will work with Deputy Director Corso and any other people from ACC to make sure that they have the support they need to do this. Um, in addition, I will also follow up with the Board of Supervisors to see what kind of help we can get from them. And last, I will also meet with the friends of ACC to, um, to basically answer any questions concerning these recommendations and work on any ways to brainstorm you know, how, we can, how we can put these into play, okay? Uh, again, I really hope that I can get the support of my, of my colleagues because I think this is something really, really important. Okay, so let's open it up for public comment. Um,
que haya alianza. Sí, esto es Zoom. Okay, um, Evelyn, can you hold just a minute? Yeah, you know, I think that um, for whatever reason, we're not able to hear the. Well, you can do this, but let me try and. Just to unmute them there. Oh, we hear okay, you now. Okay, we can hear you now. I'm sorry about that. Um, we're just trying to, again, learn the technology. Thankfully, there's no feedback, so why don't you start right now? I apologize. Thank you. Um, my name is Evelyn Engel, and uh, I live in the Bayview okay. here for the past 11 years. I have a small colony of feral cats, and I don't really volunteer with the ACC as some of the others do, but they've helped me. And I just want to say I support wholeheartedly um, uh, Commissioner uh, Chairman Torres's uh, recommendations. Um, I have taken two cats into the ACC, and um, they were apparently healthy, but they both had small issues that were deemed um, not adoptable. And thanks to the um, CIP policy, one of the cat volunteers was called, and eventually both of these cats, uh, Marley and the starling cat, Sammy Sweet Cheeks, they were both eventually adopted. I, I think these are reasonable policies, and I really do um, urge you to adopt them to provide care for the animals of San Francisco. So thank you very much, and thanks also to the uh, Animal Care and Control for what they've done, and to the, the CAT volunteers who have helped me so much. Thank you. Okay, let me try something real fast. Okay. And make their two minutes from, you know, speech at the mic. Uh, no, I, I'm not sure we can do that. I think there'd be feedback mm. from the phones. So, because we tried that as well. So, yeah, so unfortunately, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I'm, 
we're not able to do this. I'm not too sure how we can do it. So. Can you make her attendant? No, I won't be able to because she came in as an attendee. Okay, so I, I'm really, really sorry about that, everybody. Um, okay, I, yeah, I don't, this is. Dami, if you can hear us, could you do, uh, is it star three? Yeah, no, she needs to do star six. Star six? Yeah, to unmute. Star six to unmute. Yeah, I'm logged in as a co-host, so I can hold that as well. But I checked over there, and it's not allowing hands or anything as well. And again, everyone, I apologize. This is a brand new, a brand new um, meeting format, because um, our previous one was going away, and this is the only one that's recognized with the technology here. And for some reason, even though we tested it and saw hands before, they're not showing up right now. So I'm not too sure why that is. And we can't know. And then now, even if we do try to get people, we're not able to unmute them. So again, what I would suggest is I apologize to everyone. Um, we'll try and figure this out in time for the next meeting. But for this meeting, just please email your your comments to me. That'll be included with our um, with our records. Um, and again, it's michaelangelo.torres at sfdph.org. My email is on the website. Okay. Again, everyone, I'm sorry about this. Okay, I guess what we do is we go for the vote now. Um, any kind of questions or anything before we go for a vote? Uh, are we voting just on the exact language of these uh, recommendations or is there still revisions to come? No, these are, these are the recommendations we're voting on. There are some slight revisions which are on that additional page, which again, they're very slight. Um, instead of summary, for example, we put list. Instead of a summary covering, we put the number of animals microchipped and um, the number of, so basically we took out the word summary and we're a little bit more descriptive as far as what we're looking at. Were we looking at just the numbers or are we looking at a list? So that's the only change. Otherwise, basically it is the same, okay? Any other questions? I mean, we did have some things that were addressed. So did you want to remove those in your recommendations? No, what I want to do is I'd like to keep everything as is. Um, and we can go ahead and in the letter indicate that there has been some progress. We can, I can, you can even assist me if you want with it. Um, you know, it sounds like progress has been done or there has been some steps, but I, I did want this recommendation to be as is. Um, and that we would use it basically in which to, to go forward. Okay? So sort of, a, oh. 
uh, on the record. And then, for example, for some of the items like the microchipping SOP, we could then put a line item underneath, like this was provided or something like that. We could do that, or otherwise just say that a number of things were, you know, were, and I guess we can talk about that as well. Um, what I envisioned was just a blanket statement saying that a lot of these are, you know, have been, are being addressed right now or have already been covered. This is what was, was this is what is um, a recommendation. Some of them have been met. It's still a recommendation, but some of them have been met, and we're very thankful for that. But you know, we do want this document to main, to to be maintained as is. That's what I would suggest. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Great. And again, I, I you know I I hope that I was able to to answer any kind of questions, and with the public comments that we were able to hear, that that would also you know help you as well as the the written comments we received too. Okay. So, I guess we are going for the vote now, okay? So, um, when I call your name, please state yes if you're in favor of approving the Department of Animal Care and Control recommendations, or no if you are not in favor. Commissioner Rosenroy? Yes. Commissioner Tobin? Yes. Commissioner Van Horn? Yes. Commissioner Torres is yes as well. The recommendations have passed. Thank you so much, everybody. Okay, so thank you again, everybody. Um, some people have been helping me. I will be in contact with you for more help. <laughs> okay, but uh, thank you again to my to my to the wonderful commission for for supporting us on this. Okay, so okay, so moving on. Items to be put on the agenda for future commission meetings. Uh, due to scheduling conflicts, we will not be holding a meeting in April. Okay, therefore, our next meeting will be held on Thursday, May 11th. This meeting will be held in room. 408 at City Hall. Please reach out to me by the Friday before our next meeting with any proposed agenda items and any supporting documents. For our next meeting, that will be by Friday, March, I'm sorry, Friday, May 5th. The agenda and any supporting documents provided to the commission by that time will be uploaded to our website at sf.gov forward slash animal commission by the Monday evening before the meeting. So for our next meeting, that will be Monday, May 8th. Uh, next month's agenda will include, um, hopefully, a discussion concerning glue traps and a possible ban of their sale and use in San Francisco. If we want, we can also invite um, Dr. Chan, you know, to present. Um, I'd also like to uh, the possibility of a discussion on animal c control officers and what the commission can do to address any staffing issues, and also the quarterly report for the January through March 2023 time period from SF Animal Care and Control. Uh, please remember to check out our website at sf.gov forward slash animal commission for any updates and additional information. Uh, do any commissioners have any questions or anything else to add before we adjourn? One last comment on my part. Um, as the new San Francisco Veterinary Medical Association president, um, I will be putting pressure on all of our members to volunteer for the rabies vaccine clinics at ACC that they haven't been able to provide. Um, but I think it would be great for the community to put pressure on their own personal veterinarians. When you go into your regular vet, say, hey, have you uh, done any work with ACC and would you consider it? Um, the more, more people we ask, the better chances, the chances that we'll be able to continue, continue to see that provi service provided in the city. Great update, great announcement. And as you can see, the support is already coming in. Um, okay, so I guess, uh, again, thank you to everybody for your help um, concerning this agenda item. Um, 
And uh, thanks again for the support. Okay, so uh, I did want to mention one more thing. Again, I apologize to anyone who was not able to make a public comment remotely. Um, again, I will look into this, but please feel free to forward any kind of public comment to me, and I will include it with the records. Okay, so thank you, everyone, so much for being a part of tonight's meeting. It is 8.04, and we are now adjourned. Good night, everyone, and we'll see you in May. Thank you.